My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning. This is Pastor Lane Jones from Caucus Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us on the Beacon of Hope broadcast. And, you know, for many months now, we've been following Jesus through his life and ministry. And now we've arrived at the most horrific and yet glorious moment of Christ's life on earth when he would lay down his life on the cross to save us from our sins. Well, what I've done, as I've done with many of these events of Christ's life that have more than one account, you remember that the Gospels, there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all write about the life and ministry of our Lord. And so when you have more than one Gospel account, what I like to do is to harmonize them, to bring the details of the four Gospels together. The first thing I'd like to talk about is is that Christ was crucified as a criminal with other criminals. So we begin our reading. It says, And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the Place of a Skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha and Calvary. Then they crucified him. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and the other on his left, and Jesus in the center. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. So after reading these verses, let's start by thinking about the place of Jesus' crucifixion. It's a place that has been named Golgotha or Calvary. Either name means basically the same thing, the place of a skull. And as I said last week, I have had the privilege of going to Israel a number of years ago. And there is a hillside outside of what would be called the the Damascus Gate in the ancient world. And in that spot, they also do know that crucifixions did take place. And there is a garden nearby, which the Bible describes as a place of Jesus' burial. There is actually in that garden a first century tomb that was hewn out of rock. That also was described in the Bible. And uh, my personal opinion is that that is the spot where Jesus was crucified. It really doesn't matter. I would say this, though, right there in that hill, there's a rock formation that does look like the, the, a skull. And so it just makes me wonder if that isn't the location of Jesus' crucifixion. I don't really care exactly where it was. I just want you to understand that when we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, this is not a myth that someone made up like a fairy tale. These are real events at real places. And let's also talk about the horror of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, if you're like me, again, you've heard the statement, Jesus died on the cross or Jesus was crucified so frequently that you may have lost the horror of what that means. But the cross was maybe the most fearful way you could die. First of all, I want you to think about that. They nailed a human being to these two large beams. Now, the one the one beam that would be upright. It seems to me it would be somewhere around 12 to 15 feet in length, and that would be the upright part of the cross. And then there's a cross beam, and to the cross beam is where they would typically either bind with ropes or they would stick nails through the wrists of the individuals. And so it seems that Jesus was not crucified, don't think through the palms of his hand as much as it would be through his wrists. And the reason why is because the wrist bones could support a person's weight. The the, the small bones in your palm of your hand uh, would not. And so you're nailed and possibly roped or both to this 
crossbeam. Here's how Britannica describes this. Usually the condemned man, after being whipped or scourged, dragged the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment, stripped of his clothing, either then or earlier at his scourging, he was bound fast and with outstretched arms to the crossbeam or nailed firmly to it through the wrists. The crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft and made it and made fast to it about nine to twelve feet from the ground. Now you can imagine that how horrific that would be. So think about a human being being impaled, nailed literally to a cross. Now this person, when he's nailed there, is not hanging there in order to just bring some torture for a time and then be let loose. This person is nailed to that cross to hang until his death. And this type of death was often long and torturous. Other forms of capital punishment that we may be more familiar with, such as hanging or stoning or a firing squad or the electric chair or even lethal injection... All of these would seem very humane compared to crucifixion because all these other methods I described would result in the death of the victim within a short span of time from minutes even down to seconds. Crucifixion was designed to torture a person to death over a long period of time from hours even to days. So due to the way you were hung on the cross, you could not get your lungs to expand and thus breathe without pushing your body up for each breath. Now remember, in order to do that, with your pulling up with your arms, you're pulling against the nails that are nailed through your wrists. And in order to push up from your legs, you're pushing up with nails that have been driven through your feet. So you can't imagine it. each breath is absolute agony. And the basic way the victim of crucifixion would die was from weakening through blood loss, dehydration, and then even fatigue so that he could no longer push up in order to breathe. So you die of asphyxiation. You can't, you can't breathe. That's typically why they would die. Now, again, the body's going through shock from all the pain of just having those nails driven through you. And again, this could take from hours to days for a person to die there, depending on the person. But I also heard from a few different sources that often what they would do is they would take that big beam up and they would drop it into a very large and deep hole. And of course, when that is dropped in there, it's secured, but the effect on the crucified person can be horrific because with all of your body weight plus inertia behind that heavy cross being dropped into that hole could literally just rip bones out of joint. And it seems that that is exactly what happened when our Lord was crucified. Now, what's interesting as well is David, the great king of Israel, was, of course, a writer of Scripture. He wrote about 70-some of the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. These are Old Testament songs, Hebrew songs. And in Psalm 22, he's writing about some suffering that he is going through, but in such poetic terms that when you look at it, it really sounds much like Jesus talking from the cross. It really does. And keep in mind, David wrote this a thousand years before Christ was even born. I just want to read you some of the verses out of that Psalm. Psalm 22, I'm going to read verses 11 to 18. And I really believe that God, as only he could do, looking down, uh, knowing the end from the beginning, as he's 
guiding David in, in these thoughts. David is not merely writing about his own experiences, but he is writing about what our Lord would be feeling when he was being crucified. Now, see if you don't agree with me. I'm, I, remember, it's poetic. This is a, a psalm. Psalm 22, I'm reading verses 11 to 18. And here's what David wrote, and I believe what Jesus was experiencing and what he was saying in his heart and mind as he's going through this. Be not far from me. He's talking to God here. For trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, I want you to just think of what's being said here as David writes this, and think of how our Lord could have been saying these very things as he's being crucified. The first thing is he says that trouble is near, there is none to help, and he's calling out on the Lord to be near him. And from our Lord's perspective, there's no follower of his that's going to be able to stop this. The Roman government has made their decision. They've got soldiers that are professionally trained to do this. The people are not able to rise up. There are no followers that can stop this. And how how it is put in the psalm is, there is none to help. That would include even God himself was not going to stop this. He mentions bulls having surrounded him, strong bulls of Bashan encircling him. So the idea is there are powerful people, evil people, standing around Christ's cross, moving in for the kill, as it were. And of course, there were soldiers there. There were the religious leaders who put him there. There's also what we could never see, and that is the demonic forces that were involved there. He mentions in verse 13 that they gape at him with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Think of a lion when it's showing its teeth and its anger. And these, I believe, are representing poetically the cruel words that they're hurling at Jesus as he was suffering for their sins, as well as your sins, as well as my sins. He was there for all of us. Then David writes, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Think of how Jesus would feel as that cross is dropped into that hole. And literally his bones are being pulled out of joint and his body doesn't have the shape anymore like it would have. He talks about how his heart feels like it's melted wax. And again, think of the fact that you can't breathe unless you push up. And so how that would make you feel internally. He mentions also his strength being dried up like a potsherd. Now, what's a a potsherd? Well, think of a piece of pottery like a a vase. And when it gets smashed, it, it breaks into what we call shards. And the idea is that these are broken pieces that are good for basically nothing. And so he's saying, that's my strength is like that. It's 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 gone. It's it's good for nothing. He says, My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Think of the thirst that our Lord is experiencing 
as his tongue is literally sticking on the inside of his mouth. And then he makes the statement, you have brought me to the dust of death. David went on by saying that dogs have surrounded me. Now, don't think of your nice dog at your house if you have a a pet dog. When we're talking about the dogs here surrounding him, think of the wild dogs that hunt in packs that are untamed and vicious. That's what Jesus is talking about here, what David was describing even in his day. Dogs surrounded him. So it's like this pack of evil people. He says, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. So he's surrounded by evil people. They pierced my hands and my feet. And again, that fits with crucifixion. The fact that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Now, I have no idea what possessed David to write these words other than the Holy Spirit, but the piercing of the hands and feet definitely applies to Christ being crucified. Now, recently I came across an ancient artifact that honestly was troubling to me. You could find it on the website history.com, which is connected with the History Channel. Now, it was a, a heel bone of a man who was discovered about 60 miles from present-day Venice. So we're not talking anywhere near Jerusalem. We're talking about over in Italy. These bones had belonged to a crucified man about 2,000 years ago, so it would be roughly the same era as when Jesus would have been crucified. By the way, there's no one claiming that this is Christ. It's, it's not in the same region. But what was so troubling to me was the fact that they found in this heel bone a large nail that was intact that had been driven through the crucified man's heel. Now, imagine the pain associated with being nailed to a cross through your heel because they're going to nail your feet there. Now, I'm going to quote from the article. It says, A Greek archaeologist found a seven-inch nail still attached to a small piece of olive wood, which researchers concluded was all that remained of the cross from which he was hung. Now, can you imagine what that would be like? That is what our Lord went through to save you and I. David went on to write, and again, fits with Christ, I can count all my bones, they look and stare at me. Now, I imagine this would apply to both Jesus' enemies and his friends. How awful to be hanging, either naked, and he very well may have been totally naked, or almost naked, in shame, as a viciously beaten and utterly humiliated man. And that's what Jesus was on the cross. He doesn't look glorified or beautiful. It was a horrific scene. And the humiliation of being hung there in front of both friends and enemies, beaten and bruised, looking very weak, honestly. And David describes that they look and stare at me. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, what is amazing to me is, again, that David wrote this and included these details a thousand years before Christ was even born. So look again at the details that David wrote about and that really are fulfilled in the crucifixion. None of his followers could help stop the cruelty being done to him. Number two, strong people surrounding him, moving in for the kill. Uh, One time they're called bulls. Another time they're called wild, like dogs. Three, cruelty and hate being poured out upon him. Four, physical effects of Christ's crucifixion. While hanging on the cross, he says he felt like he was being poured out like water. His bones were out of joint. His heart felt like wax, melted wax. This strength is dried up like a broken piece of pottery. He's so thirsty that his tongue is clinging to his jaws. 
that he could count all of his bones, stared at by those all around, and then his garments being divided and some distributed by casting lots. So these things would be fulfilled to Christ's crucifixion, and that's why I really think Psalm 22, if you want to get a chance to read that on your own, put yourself behind the eyes of Christ, and I think you will see what he was seeing. It's astounding. Then there's the humiliation of Jesus' crucifixion. One is executed by crucifixion. You've obviously are seen as a person who's committed a major crime against humanity. And further, Jesus is being crucified among criminals. So he's being crucified as, by the way, the scriptures prophesied that in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, that it would be numbered with the transgressors. He'd be numbered with the rebels. And although Jesus was not a rebel, that's how he's dying, numbered with criminals. Now, I want you also to consider another passage here, and this one shows that Jesus' worldly possessions were divided among the soldiers, just as Psalm 22, by the way, had prophesied. So listen to what it says. Now, it was the third hour. Third hour is roughly 9 a.m. in the morning, okay? Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments, made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Four major points from this passage. First of all, that Jesus has been placed on the cross to die. So he's not going to be tortured and released. He's there to die. The cross was a place of execution. I want you to keep in mind, when Jesus says then in the Gospels, take up your cross and follow me, what he's calling you and I to do is to die to our old lives. He's calling us to turn our lives over to him. Doesn't mean we're going to die a violent death necessarily, but it could. What it means is, I my life doesn't belong to me any longer. It belongs to him. He's going to run the show, not me. And whatever he tells me to do has to be okay with me. I've got to do it. So he's been placed on the cross to die. You also notice Jesus' executioners are assuming the rights to his clothes. And this makes sense to me. My guess is that it was customary for the soldiers who had the gruesome duty of crucifying criminals to get at least the right to divide up whatever personal effects the victim had. And so it seems Jesus had few belongings, but he owned a nice tunic, which very possibly was made specially for him. Uh, that garment was too nice to rip into four sections. And so the soldiers divided up the other parts of his clothing into four parts, and they decided to cast lots, which is a game of chance for the ownership of Christ's tunic. The soldiers then guarded the scene at that point. They sit down to watch him there to ensure that no one tries to rescue the Christ. He is on the cross to die. And what I find interesting as well is Jesus then prays for his executioners. This was the first recorded statement from the cross. And if you didn't know this, there are seven major statements, the, what we call the seven sayings of the cross. And this is the first one. And it seems to be directed at all those who are participating in his suffering, from the religious leaders, possibly them, who worked especially hard to get him crucified in the first place, 
to the Roman soldiers who were helping and even dividing his clothes, the ones who drove the nails through his hands and his feet, the ones who lifted him up on the cross. Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And that, again, fills, fulfills prophecy. You remember I was quoting from Isaiah 53 and verse 12, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, Isaiah wrote this prophecy 700 years before Jesus' birth. That's around the time that he lived. And he says he'll be numbered with the transgressors. But he goes on and he says in his poem, and he made intercession for the transgressors. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's actually praying. Intercession means you're interceding before God for these people. He's interceding before God saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Let me go on in, the, in our reading. It says, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews re read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, what these verses show us is that Jesus died without a formal accusation. Now, the accusation was placed on a board above the victim's head. So, basically, anybody going by the cross could look up and read the accusation board for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what is an accusation board about? Well, it's horrific to see people dying in this torturous way. And so the purpose of the accusation board was to give the people an understanding of why this person is being crucified. So, for instance, you may be walking into Jerusalem, and Pilate crucified many other people than Jesus of Nazareth. He was not the only one by any stretch. But you're walking into Jerusalem one day, and you see the horrific scene of a person hanging there, dying by crucifixion. And you're asking yourself, who would do such a cruel thing? Why is this person on a cross? But above his head would be the explanation, the accusation board. So it may say murderer, some major crime that the Romans would think this is worth crucifixion. But above Jesus' head, Pilate gave no accusation. He instead gave a title. And that's why the Jews took exception with this, the Jewish uh, religious leaders, because it didn't say that Jesus had done anything wrong, which he hadn't. It just said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So what the religious leaders wanted it to say, he said that he was the king of the Jews, and then that could be an accusation. But the reality, Pilate would not, he'd been pushed around enough that day. And so he was not going to give in this time. He'd already signed off for Jesus' death. And so he, he, he would not give on this one. The accusation board did not have an accusation on it, it had a statement on it. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. What I find interesting is that since Jesus dies without a formal accusation on his board, your accusations can be placed there. The idea is this. Maybe you are a person that is a liar. You're a person that has been lazy. Maybe you're a person that has cheated. Maybe you're an adulterer. Maybe you're a gossip. Maybe you're just flat out mean. And there may be people around you who have accused you of that, and, and rightly so. 
if even if no one on this planet accused you, you know when you stand before God that those sins that you have committed are rightly accused against you. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, his accusation board is clean. There's no accusation on it. And he can take your sins, your guilt, and he will. And he already died in your place so that you could be forgiven if you would turn to him for salvation. Your crimes, my crimes, are placed upon him so that we can be forgiven. Now, this next section, it's kind of hard to know how to take it. Because, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Jesus was repeatedly encouraged to save himself. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, let me just give you two observations to think about at this point. The first one is that Satan did not know when he filled Judas, which he did, by the way, possessed Judas for a period of time and worked through the religious leaders of Jesus' people to crucify Jesus. He didn't know that this was God's plan to save humanity. But I wonder when he finally figured that out. So let me just read to you the account. And But I also want you to think about something else just before I read it. And that is that all of the people who told Jesus to save himself were his enemies. Not one of his friends did that. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't want that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Maybe someone said it was recorded, but every one of the recorded statements that we have in Scripture where someone is saying to him, save himself, come from Jesus' enemies, and therefore we'd have to think that there's Satan's influence on those statements. So why might the devil be trying to get Jesus to save himself at this point? At least I wonder. I'm not certain. But I wonder if Satan at some point began to figure out he had actually made the greatest mistake he could possibly make by getting Jesus on the cross. Let me read the account and see what you think. It says, And the people stood looking on, and those who passed by, these would be the common people, blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders sneered. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Let Christ, the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So notice all the people who urged Jesus to get off the cross. I can identify at least four groups. First of all, you got the common people who are walking by. This is an attempt to make Christ respond in pride, which was worthless. Jesus was not going to do that. But you'll notice they're saying, save yourself and come down from the cross. Then you have the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, these would be the religious leaders of the day. And they also are attempting to use blasphemy to turn Christ from his mission. I think they were not expecting him to come down. I don't think that they wanted him to come down. But it's interesting if Satan was influencing these men, that they're that they in many ways are trying to almost goad him into coming down. 
And here are some of their statements. He cannot save himself, descend from the cross and we will believe him. God will not have him. He falsely claimed to be the son of God. And all of these things are like baiting him to come down from the cross. Then you have the criminals who are crucified with him. And what one of them says is save yourself and us. So it's almost like appealing to Christ's compassion. Hey, you could save yourself and save me too. He's not talking about saving his soul. He's really blaspheming the Lord as well. And then you have the soldiers, even the Roman soldiers, who are crucifying Jesus, saying, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. Why all this, why all this talk about saving himself? I, I at least have to wonder if at some point during Christ's crucifixion, before these men start talking, Satan realizes, uh-oh, I made the wrong choice. He is not merely being rejected by his fellow man as Satan wanted him to be. He wanted the man to reject Jesus as the king. But he didn't realize that as Jesus is dying, he's dying as the savior. He'll come back as king, but the issue of sin needed to be solved. And Satan clearly did not understand that before the cross took place. Very well possible that now all these people telling Jesus to get down from the cross are Satan's last-ditch effort to get out from a problem that he made for himself. There was a prophecy in Isaiah, excuse me, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3.15. It was actually spoken to the serpent after the serpent got Eve to sin. And God said to the serpent, which was the devil there, he said, I will put hostility, enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and it's the seed of the woman, or he, actually, how it's translated in the modern translations, he will bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The picture, again, is the serpent snapping and striking at the Savior's heel, and although he sinks his teeth in there, the, the Savior stomps on his head, uses that actual bite to then come down with his heel and crush the serpent's head and deal him a death blow. That's exactly what's happening on the cross. Satan would have God's righteousness to work against mankind's salvation because of all the sins we've committed. And yet his convincing of the crowd to put Jesus on the cross results in the sin debt being paid in full so you and I can be forgiven and saved. And what a wonderful blessing that is. And so I really have to wonder if Satan isn't by now figured that out and is trying his dead level best to get Jesus off the cross, but he's not successful in doing it. Now, something else in our reading comes next, and that is Jesus saves a soul while he's suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but if you are very, very sick or in a lot of pain, if you're like me, you probably don't want to be about around a bunch of people at that point. Well, if I get extremely violently sick, man, I'm in bed. I hopefully get it dark and and just try to be by myself and, and handle this as best I can. Jesus isn't merely sick. Jesus is, is full of the pain of his crucifixion, as well as the weight of sins of the world being placed upon him by none other than God the Father himself. As the scripture says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. And yet, while going through such horrific suffering, he actually takes the time to save a soul. This is his second statement from the cross. 
Uh, let me read it to you. It says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. There's that statement again. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. What he, the, the first thief speaks in blasphemy, and again, another statement, save yourself and us. Make, make me part of this thing. You, you get down from the cross and get me down from the cross. And the other thief on the other side of Christ looks at, at uh, well, I don't know if he could look that way because they're in such terrible position, but he, he calls over to the man on the other side of Christ, don't you fear God? We're going to die here is what he's saying, and we're going to get what we deserve because we've deserved our punishment. And so he's admitting that his sin, he's realizing he's getting what he deserves. But then he looks at or tries to speak to Jesus of Nazareth and listen to what he says. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I don't know when it was. I don't know if it's the result of watching Jesus compared to the religious leaders that are blaspheming him. I don't know how it was, if maybe it was all the miracles that he'd heard about Jesus of Nazareth performing, but this man has come to the part, and in the end of his life, as he's hanging there, knowing that he's just minutes or hours away from his death, realizing, I need need God's forgiveness, and he calls out to Christ, would you remember me? Would you forgive me? And what does Jesus answer to him? Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what is Jesus saying to him? Your forgiveness is immediate. Today you're going to be with me. Your forgiveness is total because you're going to be with me. I'm not going to say, well, you got to go to purgatory for so many years or anything like that. Today you're going to be with me. Your forgiveness is immediate. Your forgiveness is total and it's eternal because you're going to be with me in paradise. There's no sin there. What a blessing that Jesus would forgive this guy on the spot. But isn't that what he came to do in the first place? When he saved the wicked man named Nicodemus, and I just preached on Nicodemus, I'm sorry, not Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a guy that had made money cheating people. When Jesus saved him, he made a statement. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was what Jesus' mission was, to seek out and to save the lost. And there may be some of you that are listening right now, and to be honest with you, you can't figure out why you haven't turned the dial yet. Because you don't listen to religious broadcasts. And it's not me. We're just talking to you about what the scripture says about Jesus and how he died in your place. And may I say to you that you may be even right now, God may be reaching out to you and calling you to himself. Jesus was willing to save this guy even while he's hanging in agony, paying for our sins. The next section It's another statement that Jesus makes from the cross, and it shows that Jesus cares for his mother and one of his disciples while he's on the cross. Now, again, if you said, well, you know, Pastor Lane, you got these administrative duties to do and you're deathly sick, I'm just going to tell you, in all probability, I'm going to put those things aside and I'm going to try to get well. I'm going to not have the strength or the will to, to do that in all probability at that point. Not Jesus. He's hanging in total agony. And what is he doing? He's looking down 
Well, let me read it to you. It's out of the Gospel of John, by the way. It says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom uh, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. You know, first of all, I want you to think about Jesus' concern for his mother Mary. When he says, woman, behold your son. Jesus wanted Mary to be like a mother to his disciple John. Now, there were other children that Mary and Joseph had. We can read about them in Scripture. And and certainly Mary could have spent her time mothering them and being a blessing to them. They probably were in their adult years by then. But Mary could have spent her days and her last days with her own uh, blood children, but she, Jesus gave her a different assignment. He says, I want you to be like a mother to John. And now why John? Well, John would live longer than the rest of the disciples. From everything we know from history, and even the date of the book of the Revelation, it seems that John will outlive the other disciples. He actually may be the only one that died a natural death And my best sources tell me that John wrote the book of Revelation about 85 A.D., could be even later than that. And if we make Mary a a very young mother, let's just say she's only 15. Let's just throw that number out there. When she gives birth to the Christ, she still would have been, what, 45 toward 50 when the crucifixion is taking place. And so uh, she's got some life to live still. And so Jesus gives her. Uh, the assignment. I want you to, to stay with John. And of course, she does that. But not only is Jesus caring for Mary, but he's caring for John as well. Jesus had given John and his brother James, both of them, uh, one of the 12, uh, both of them of the 12 disciples, he gave the brothers the nickname Sons of Thunder. Now, it the nickname may have been in some ways a compliment because of their zeal, but it also reflected their sometimes violent reaction to those they did not feel were doing right. I'll give you one example. Jesus and his disciples were headed toward Jerusalem, and actually I think it was late in his ministries, he's heading there for his crucifixion, and as they're going through a Samaritan area, Jesus sent some of his disciples ahead of him to let a Samaritan village know that he was coming through. He'd had great ministry with the Samaritans in previous years. And so when they went through and found out that Jesus and his disciples were headed to Jerusalem, there's a real racial, uh, social issue and, and prejudice between the two groups of people. And the Samaritans said, we don't want you to come. Well, when James and John heard about that, they said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and wipe them all out? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 fellas, I came to save people's lives, not to destroy them. They're sons of thunder. They they are zealous, absolutely, but sometimes their zeal gets a little out of control as they want to kind of squash those who they think are going the wrong direction. But you know, John, the son, one of the sons of thunder, becomes a very gentle and godly man. That doesn't mean he lost his zeal in any stretch. But you know what he's known for today? He's called the apostle of love, and that's due to his frequent references to loving God and loving your Christian brother that he makes throughout his writings. And I believe Mary had a role in that. I really do. I think that her influence was great on John's life as well. And so it was a mutual benefit. But here Jesus is, hanging, suffering, with the weight of the sins of the world upon him. 
And yet he's reaching out and making sure that John was going to have a good influence in his life and that Mary would have someone to take care of her. That was his third statement. Now, there's a fourth statement that will take place. And we'll talk about that as we consider Jesus now suffering in darkness. It says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, the sun was darkened and there was darkness over all the land. So we talked earlier how the third hour was 9 a.m. So that's about the time that Jesus is, is crucified. He's, he's impaled on the cross and thrown onto the cross. And it's, of course, set up. Now, the sixth hour then is around noon. And the ninth hour then would be 3 p.m. And so Jesus is hanging, now is being shown on the cross, between the noon and the 3 p.m. hour, and it becomes dark. Now, Jesus, I'm I'm going back to the text, says Jesus cried out with a loud voice. I'm sorry, let me back up just a little bit. This is about the ninth hour, so it's about 3 p.m. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. So, in this event, notice the time period. It's really the middle hours. It's it's right in the midday, three hours from noon to 3 p.m. Notice the darkness. Now, when you see these um, films on the life of Christ, often they will depict the darkness as a really bad storm, or they'll, uh, maybe some of you have thought about an eclipse, a solar eclipse, but the reality is solar eclipses do not last three hours like this. And also, I want you to think about the fact that this goes over the whole land, the land of Israel. So it's not a solar eclipse. It's, I don't believe it's a, it's a bad thunderstorm. What's going on is God miraculously is putting the lights out all across the land of Israel, at least, because it says all the land. So what is he showing by this? I'll give you a couple possibilities. The scripture doesn't tell us definitively why the darkness is there. So I'll just give you a couple possibilities. One, it could be an expression of God's anger at the world for the rejection of his son. It could also be an expression of God's wrath being poured out on his son in our place. And be, and you remember, what does Jesus say right there at 3 p.m.? He says, my God, my God, he's calling out to the Lord. He's not using the Lord's name in vain. He's calling out to God. And he's saying, why have you forsaken me? Now, these words, what do they mean? They show us And by the way, without those statements, we would not know this, but they show us Christ's separation from the Father due to our sin. As the scripture says, he became sin for us who knew no sin. So the idea is that God the Father took our sins and placed them on his Son and punished Jesus as if it was you or I. That is why you can be forgiven, and God can be just in doing it. Because sometimes you may think to yourself, there's no way I should ever go to heaven. I've done too many terrible things. And if any of us are thinking clearly, we would all come into the same conclusion if we're wise, because our sins are great before a holy God. I don't care who you are. But the reality is this, that when Jesus is dying on the cross, God placed your sins upon him. 
and Jesus pays for them completely. And part of that punishment was absence from the presence of God. And Jesus is expressing that when he says, why have you forsaken me? Not that he's confused about it, but it lets us know the the horror of Christ being separated from his father. And then think of the horrific spiritual suffering that he's going through at this point. Again, it is not merely the physical abuse that he has taken. We've just kind of touched on the surface of the of the abuse when we we're talking about what it means to be crucified. That was what that was not what Jesus was sweating drops of blood over in the Garden of Gethsemane. It really was the horrific suffering of bearing the guilt and the weight and the punishment of the sins of the world. Now, this was misunderstood when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember, remember that he is desperately thirsty. His mouth, his tongue is clinging to his jaws as was described by David. And so several of the men did not understand Jesus' words to mean he's calling out to God. They thought he was calling for Elijah. So it's pretty obvious to me, Christ is having a hard time formulating his words. And what was the reaction? Well, one person tried to grab a sponge of sour wine, uh, um, other translations call it vinegar, and to give him some of that to drink, while the rest were saying, hey, stop, stop, stop. Let's see if Elijah tries to come and rescue him. But Elijah wasn't coming. No human was coming. God himself was not coming to rescue his son. Jesus had gone to the cross to die there for your sin and for my sin too. And Christ was not calling for deliverance. He was mourning the separation he was experiencing from his father and the wrath of, of his father being poured out in our on, him, on Christ in our place. Now consider only one aspect of Christ's suffering for our sins. I want you just to think of a statement in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. Again, this was another prophecy. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So some not all, but some of the suffering of Christ is not merely for, okay, you lying or you cheating, okay? It goes beyond that. Some of the suffering, a great deal of the suffering, was all that the sin-cursed world brings because we are, we are sinful creatures living in a sin-cursed world. Let me give you some examples of this. The sorrows and griefs, such as the loss of a loved one, may have nothing to do with you committing a direct sin. But you are, because you're a, you're a sinner, because you are living on a sin-cursed planet, there's disease here, we lose our loved ones. Jesus is even bearing that pain. How about the, 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 the sadness of a rebellious child or the, or the grief caused by a cruel parent or physical diseases that we have, physical injuries people endure, emotional injuries? Think of PTSD and all of the emotional injuries one can endure. Think of a broken love relationship, the sorrow of that. Think of loneliness that many of us deal with. Think of birth defects. Think of guilt for sinful choices that you've made in the past. Think of bondage from sinful habits like drug addiction or alcohol addiction or pornography addiction. Think of all the aspects and all the grief because of fear, fear of the future. Think of it. Any of the effects that we have because of just sin being in this world. Jesus bore the penalty and the pain of that. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, the scripture says. 
you have not experienced a pain in your heart or a pain in your body that Jesus did not literally experience when he's hanging on the cross and God places the weight of the sins of the world upon him. Now, Jesus went on to fulfill scripture, his suffering being almost over 3 p.m. is about the time of his death. And so it says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. This is fifth statement. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. So it seems like that initial fear that Elijah might be coming is gone away. Jesus now has cried out that he's thirsty. And why does he do that? Well, we're told that he did this that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so that fulfills another prophecy that he would be thirsty and he would partake of of the, what this gall substance and and horrific as that was. Then Jesus makes two final and glorious statements as he lays down his life and dies. I'll read them. It says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and, and he said, It is finished. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit and breathed his last. Now, the statement, it is finished, there's actually two major meanings behind this statement. The first is it means paid in full. It's something that you would actually write over a bill of sale when you've paid off completely your bill. And that was what was done in that day. And so think of that application, paid in full. The debt payment for sin is paid in full. So when you come to Christ, you are forgiven for all your sins. They are paid for, not in part, not what, only what you did in the past, and then you got to be you know, perfect going forward. Not that at all. They're paid in full, past, present, future. Your sins have been paid for on the cross. And then it also, it is finished, was a Roman cry of victory. It's something that the Romans would say when they won a battle. And very interestingly, after Jesus' death, you may remember that the Roman centurion, who's right there on the scene, says, surely this man was the Son of God. And I think this may be one of the major reasons why he was convinced of that, because think of it. He's not dying in, in, uh, with, with a gasp, and he's crying out in victory. It is finished. Not only that, there was an earthquake. There's all kinds of things. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. We consider his death and resurrection. Now, let's talk then about the second statement. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is how Christ addresses God just a few moments earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as if God, again, and he was, he was away from Christ. But now that things have been paid for in full and that Christ has has now taken upon himself and paid for our sins, he can now call out to God as his father. And he calls him father into your hands. I commend my spirit. And so Jesus is now giving up or yielding up his spirit to God, the father. That is this. Jesus dies at this point. Christ's death was a literal, physical event. Jesus of Nazareth did not seem to die. He did not act like he died. He literally, physically died. And why is this so important? Because if Christ did not literally die, the resurrection is not literally true. So Jesus did not, and then Jesus would not have conquered death, and we would have no hope of victory over death either. But since Jesus did die and conquer death, we who are his followers will conquer death as well.
We'll talk about that again, Lord willing, next week. Now, let me just bring you three, what I would call paradoxes, where it doesn't seem to be true, but it is. And when we think about the cross, first of all, it's both the greatest tragedy as well as the greatest victory. A tragedy because of what we did to God's Son, but a victory because Christ's death pays for our sins and opens the way of salvation to any who will turn to him in repentance and faith. I pray if you have not yet done so, today will be that day for you. We also see another paradox. Satan's, it's a day of Satan's greatest triumph and yet his greatest defeat. His greatest triumph was convincing man to reject the sinless Son of God, the very one who healed people, who delivered them from their sin, who taught them how to live, who loved them wholeheartedly, and somehow Satan convinced man to, to reject him. And yet it was his greatest defeat, because as Satan is working to get Christ on the cross, the cross becomes the very place that our sin will be paid for, death will be conquered, and mankind will be redeemed back to God. Third paradox, it's a, the cross is a place that shows the sinfulness of man and yet the sovereignty of God. Sinfulness of man, we chose to torture the sinless Son of God. But the sovereignty of God, God planned it from eternity past. It was not a surprise to the Lord that mankind rejected his Son. It was in the plan to save us. Revelation chapter 13, 8, Jesus is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before God ever created the earth, he had planned to rescue man at the cross. So as a result of this message, I pray that you'll appreciate Christ's sacrifice for you. I pray that you'll see God's love for you and understand God's forgiveness that he has provided for you through the sacrifice of his son. Because Jesus died for you so you can live eternally with him. You remember what that thief said, Lord, would you remember me? When you come into your kingdom, what does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. If you're lost today, I pray you'll turn to him. And if you know him, I pray that you will thank him. Thank him repeatedly the rest of your life for what he's done to save you. May the Lord bless you. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And everlasting life and light, he frees.